speaking event uh, ever at LMU. Um, So I just wanted to greet everybody for tonight for coming out because I know it's a busy week. A lot of people who have some, some have midterms still. Uh, so I just wanted to thank you for coming out. So my name is Adam Duarte. I'm the chairman and the founder of YAP at LMU. And I just you know want to thank everybody. And first, in keeping with our religious tradition, I would like to say a prayer. So everybody bow their heads. Lord, we come before you right now. We just ask for your peace to be here, Lord. We ask that you would just give us uh, a mind that at peace, Lord, and that we could have civil discourse with one another. We thank you for the freedoms and liberties that we have in this nation, and that we get to enjoy them. So, Lord, let us treat each other with respect and dignity tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Young Americans for Freedom at LMU is a conservative-leaning, conservative-libertarian-leaning group on campus. So what we seek to promote is ideas of personal liberty, free markets, traditional values, and strong national defense. Um, did I say free markets? Okay. <laughs> and, you know, as conservatives and, and libertarians, we believe in individualism. Uh, of the individualism of every person, regardless of race, uh, gender, sexual orientation, any immutable characteristic. And, and so what matters most to us in our club is the values that we share and the, and the American, uh, the American um, institutions that we have with, uh, that were set up to keep us free. And so that's what we value as conservatives on this campus. And sometimes we're mis- characterized, but I just wanted to thank everybody for coming out and hearing what we have to say, so thank you. And I would like to uh, actually introduce our Vice Chairman, uh, Vice, Chair, Vice Chairwoman, uh, Katie Porter. Uh, she will be introducing the speaker and has a few things to say as well. Young Americans for Freedom chapter. Tonight, I have the privilege and honor of introducing our first ever campus speaker. Before I begin, one note about questions afterwards. Star will be taking questions and she'll be answering your questions. And at that time, we'll just have everybody lying down that way right there. And um, our other executive board member, Lauren, will hold the microphone up to you and we're happy to take your questions. So we welcome them. Um, first, I would like to thank Student Leadership and Development and the University as a whole for working so diligently to make this event possible. Um, Katie Stiles has been especially helpful, so thank you very much. In addition, yeah. <laughs> um, in addition, Claire Booth-Lewis Policy Institute was instrumental in making this event happen. It's a 501c3 nonprofit that seeks to promote young conservative women. So thank you, Claire Boothloos. And before I introduce Star, I would also like to say a few words on how each of us in the audience can participate in this lecture. I thank all of those present, and especially those who join us who might not agree with everything that will be said tonight. One of my favorite quotes is an Aristotle quote. He said, 
The mark of an educated mind is to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. I encourage everyone to, for a moment tonight, let go of your identities. Or at least, do not fear that because you are allowing a new perspective to enter your consciousness, you will lose any part of who you are. On the contrary, you will only be strengthened and built up by a new perspective. The one thing that will heal the wounds and end the hatreds in our world is if each of us tries, with all our might, to consider what it, might be, what it must be like to be the other. Consider that we all have unique experiences that drive what we do and what we think. Nothing is random. Every human being deserves the consideration of us at least taking a moment to attempt to see it from their side. By putting on this event, we do not expect, or even hope, that your mind will be changed by what you hear. But we do hope that you will leave with a better ability to actually listen to, and not just hear, what people have to say. Be willing to be changed by what you hear. As Lions, we are asked to commit ourselves to the promotion of justice. I ask you to, after hearing tonight's lecture, begin your promotion of justice first and foremost through your treatment of others. Civil discourse cannot begin until we have a fundamental respect for the dignity of the human beings around us. That's the only way that civil discourse will be able to be present on this campus. So, without further ado, I'd like to say a few words about STAR. STAR is the founder and president of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, a policy think tank that promotes market-based solutions to fight poverty. Before involvement in social activism, STAR had seven years of first-hand experience in the grip of welfare dependency. After consulting on federal welfare reform in the mid-90s, she founded Urban Cure to bring new ideas to policy discussions on how to transition America's poor from government dependency. STAR has a bachelor's degree in marketing and international business from Woodbury University and has received numerous awards and commendations for her work on public policy issues. She regularly consults with both federal and state legislators on market-based strategies to fight poverty. She has spoken on more than 190 colleges and universities about anti-poverty initiatives, has authored several books, and is a nationally syndicated columnist with Morris Communication Group. So without further ado, please welcome Star Parker. Actually, I get firsthand to come to this university and because my grandson is considering this particular school after, of course, he goes to Loyola High School or Notre Dame or wherever he might go, uh, and then be able to come to this one. Which one did you say you should go, no? No, no, I went to Loyola. Did you? It's a good one? Okay. I don't know. It's good hands. So I already checked out your swimming pool. <laughs> He's a swimmer. I'm excited to be here. I, um, I work in Washington, D.C., as you just heard, but I'm actually from Los Angeles. I didn't uh, grow up here, but I've been here all my adult life, and you just heard about Grant because I'm an adult for a long time. And in fact, what you heard in my bio, uh, that seven years I was in and out of welfare state, it was here in Los Angeles. Uh, that's why I'm very careful anytime I come through. Uh, because the, the lifestyle that I was engaged in after having believed all the lies of the left, 
I mean, I believe some of the things we're hearing today, that poor people are poor because wealthy are wealthy, and my problems were somebody else's fault, that America's so racist I didn't need the mainstream. And hearing all this stuff, I just really got lost in myself and began uh, down a reckless path of criminal activity and drug activity and sexual activity that led me in and out of abortion clinic after clinic. And it wasn't until after the fourth time that I went into one of their so-called safe, legal, rare clinics that I had a gut instinct way down deep inside that there must be something wrong with killing your offspring. This is not exactly the best of birth control. But the California taxpayers, as you know, are very generous with their uh, uh, hospitality to keep us enslaved to the poverty plantation. Uh, so that was my life pattern. Uh, uh, but I did uh, have a child because I got pregnant again. And that child is where I ended up on welfare for three and a half years consistently, watching my life go into a little dark hole. So my normal day at that point was um, just, you know, getting up, doing whatever I could to get rid of her, uh, and then hanging out in the speech all afternoon, getting high, and then I would just kind of leave her at home. Don't, don't answer the door, don't answer the phone. I'll be right back. And yet she was not even old enough to answer the door or the phone. So it was a very reckless pattern. But after a Christian conversion, I just totally changed my life. It's right here in my life. That's one of the reasons why I come in. I have my gloves. The girls probably didn't notice. I wear my gloves when I'm here because of my first book. Um, the, it's called Pimp Scores and Welfare Brats. It's actually my autobiography. And I left details out because I wasn't sure of statutes of limitations. So every time I come to Los Angeles, I have to be very mindful that now they have DNA testing so they might catch up with me later and I might end up in jail. Uh, and I've worked too hard not to end up in jail, not just from back then, but in the work that I'm doing today. Because I think that it's important that uh, we keep people from destroying themselves, in particular if they have some potential. You know, who would have thought when I'm graduating high school, barely literate, that I would end up syndicated columns, not anymore with, with Morris. In fact, I moved on to creators. I've written for USA Today for a number of years. I'm on my fifth book right now called Necessary Noise. And I run a policy institute in Washington, D.C., where I'm working not just with the administration, but also with the Congress on how we can change welfare policy. Why am I one that wants to really drain the swamp? You know, I keep this little piece of paper with me now, because I saw it in a magazine just recently. It's about 2017 alone. And it said 20 million. I'm like, 20 million what? And it's like, this is the amount that the, uh, the, the IRS invested in debt collectors, $20 million. They paid debt collectors to collect $6.7 million uh, from taxpayers that were scamming the system. I'm like, well, I tell you, that's an interesting uh, way to spend tax money. $20 million to collect $6 million. Go figure. So what we're going to do is talk this evening about breaking the cycle of poverty, some of the things that we're working on uh, in D.C. And, and I hope you will engage because we are going to get this work done. There's such a heavy emphasis now with this current president to fix what is broken down in our most distressed zip codes. And for those that are dwelling in those particular zip codes, and some people think that he's not serious. In fact, the entire Congressional Black Caucus is doing everything they can to make sure that he's unsuccessful in this area. Uh, and there was much discussion during the elections that he wasn't serious. And so when he asked black uh, voters what do you have to lose, they said, well, maybe everything. So they didn't vote for him in particular numbers. Uh, 1.4 million actually did go into the polling booth and voted for Donald Trump. But what made more people, including ourselves at Cure, take him much more seriously is because although he didn't get the vote of the very people that he thought he would get their vote if, they were, if he focused time and attention on fixing the inner cities, uh, he, they determined he was still going to do this work, which is unusual for a politician. Usually a politician will try to get a vote, and then you never see him again until it's the time for them uh, to get your vote again. They'll tell you anything from the left or the right. And that's where Tip O'Neill was uh, correct when he said politics is like professional wrestling. 
the conflicts for the crowd, because at the end of the day, they're in business, and they're in the same business. And they were in that business up until the Tea Party showed up, and now things are being realigned to see if we could focus ourselves back on what the founding principles of our country are, and then it ended up with the election of Donald Trump. So when he said that he was going to fix the inner cities, he was very serious about it, and he came into Washington to spend some serious political capital on this. Uh, he said it in his inauguration, and then he said it again at the Joint Center, uh, the Joint um, uh, uh, Congress with the, with the House and the, and the Senators. So people started taking much more seriously, as well as when we started putting together task force and teams to really get this work done. And there's a ma major opportunity for us to get this work done, regardless of uh, whether you like him or not. Because all of the social snapshots and all of the financial forecasts show us today that having this very large, chronically poor portion of our population is not healthy. It's not healthy for the individuals, it's not healthy for our country, it's not healthy for their communities, it's not healthy for us locally, statewide, and or federal. And we're in trouble as a result. And in fact, one of the things that I do as an organization, I have to look at data, look at data all the time. And um, that is very disturbing. Um, demographic data from states all over the country to find uh, solutions. And what I'm finding regarding poverty, it doesn't matter where we are. The demographics that I look at, I'll look at poverty based on race, age, uh, family structure. I look at the education rates based on race, age, family structure. The crime rates based on race, age, family structure. And it doesn't matter where I am, where I'm looking, uh, wherever we're seeing those that are most unprepared to mainstream in our country today, whether they're urban or rural, whether they're uh, suburban or native, whether they're in the north, the south, the east, the west, all of the data shows the exact same thing. We can try to pretend it's something otherwise, but if you're really serious about what is broken down in our country, then you would have to conclude, like the data concludes, that the social and economic challenges that most of our most uh, distressed zip codes have, that's what we're now calling them, distressed zip codes, we're not calling them ghettos anymore, and we're not calling them welfare reform anymore, now it's opportunity initiatives. Uh, but these the challenges that they're having boil down to two things, collapsed ethics and collapsed marriage. It's not an accident that black children today are three times more likely to have been born out of marriage than was the case before the left declared war on the three fundamental principles that founded this country. The Christianity, the capitalism, and the Constitution that has helped establish the country and organize us into a place that people are to be able to live free and reach their desires. Because the best answer to everything was just pour government money at it. Uh, it didn't matter what the conflict, it didn't matter what the concern, it didn't matter what the crisis, just pour government money into it. And so what we began to see in this war on poverty during the 60s was government schools, government health care, government housing, government welfare, government wage loss, government retirement. And all of this actually helped back the, the exacerbate the conditions of despair that we're seeing in government dependencies. And they have now spread like a cancer all across our country in every state in the union and not even now confined uh, our biggest concern to our urban core. It used to be that it was like locked in and we could probably try to uh, do something. It's one of the reasons that we passed welfare reform in the 90s. I actually consulted on federal welfare reform uh, during those 90s and thought that we would be able to now transition after we saw those rates fall in half uh, because 65% of those that were on our caseload then had a high school diploma, one child, work experience. So the rates fell in half and we thought we'd be able to really move our country uh, forward as a result of of just doing a few stimulations to get people to get a hold of their lives again, um, the trend started reversing because the law started reversing and people started getting engaged in the activities that actually trap people in poverty. Because what we know is that lack of marriage equals lack of family, lack 
lack of family equals lack of tradition. Lack of tradition equals a lack of a work ethic. And lack of a work ethic equals a lack of a vision. And without a vision, people really get lost. You know, I get asked all the time, especially as a Senate Congress, because most of my readers are all across the country in the little local areas. And so they see a little picture of the box where they come. They're like, my goodness, when I hear your story, how did you get so lost? Uh, and I know it's easy to get lost. You know, when you think about rules that govern humanity, uh, we have rules that govern humanity. This is what our founding was about. That's why you find some of the founding fathers who said, look, this experiment won't work without a moral people. And in order to be a moral people, you've got to be a religious people. But we decided to scrub our schools of all reference to God. And so people began to get lost. And when I talk to the college students all the time, I say, you know, the reason you're even here is to learn the disciplines uh, of, of whatever profession that you want to go into. We know that any discipline that there are, there are rules to govern those disciplines. You're here to learn the rules uh, so that you can be, whether it's a mathematician, whether it's in music, whether it's in uh, science, you name the discipline. There are rules that govern those disciplines. But when you say that there are no rules to life, then people get lost. Most often, what people do when they don't know what to do, they look outside, see what everybody else is doing. And when you look outside today in our society, you're going to find pop culture. You look into our cesspools we call schools and you're going to find secular humanism. It used to be just moral relativism, now secular humanism. You even go into kindergarten class today and even reference to God and or talk any type of moral um, consistencies that are in your own household, you could be upbraided by your teacher. So it's total secular humanism in our government-controlled um, schools, well, government-funded union-controlled schools. And then you go to your workplace and it's more relativism. And now that's even changed over the last five years. We're starting to see an insistence that it's not even going to be morally relative to where during the 70s they were printing books, I'm okay, you're okay. Today it's not, nobody's okay unless you agree uh, with us or with me. And so political correctness has really entered into uh, our society to the point where people don't even think independently anymore. And so others become very lost. You can get reckless in the decisions that you make. So we have to ask ourselves, especially if we're going to assess poverty, we're going to really pretend that we care about those folks that are uh, in dire and that they, they really want them to have an opportunity. And we have to ask ourselves, how did we get to this point? What happened that half of the country now does not believe in even the founding principles of the country? They do not believe in eternal truths. Your choice loses its meaning if it doesn't matter what you choose. Your choices do matter. They don't believe in limited government. The role of government is to protect our interests, not to plunder us, not to pursue us. You know, this redistribution of wealth, they don't believe in city. They don't believe in free markets. You know, profit is good. You know, this disdain against capitalism is like, okay, if you really want a job tomorrow, then you should want a company to be profitable because they cannot provide a job um, that we say that we want if that company is not profitable. But yet, half the country now no longer even believes in open free markets. And then even in the concept of pluribus you know, it's gotten so divisive today that if you're not segregated into a special interest people group, then you're not even American anymore, and people have great disdain uh, for you. And this is really troubling, especially for a California girl, because you know, I've seen these divisions across the country, particularly in the South, which is where most of my family is. But at least in California, we were able to get along. I mean, we're such a diverse uh, a state, and the diverse going to be just in this room alone. But what has happened over time with our laws, now we're segmented into little special interest groups, and if you don't identify with the collectivists of that group, then you're an outcast, and it could even cost you uh, your livelihood these days, because we've very rapidly moved into a society of tolerance to where you can't even voice your opinion without perhaps even costing your job. You know, I just recently compared the Confederate flag and the rainbow flag on national TV, because I do a lot of shows, and during Charlottesville, when all the discussion about the Confederate flag, 
Uh, I had to do quite a few of those little sound bites. And you know, it got so intense, and all the left was also against this Confederate flag. I said, now this is really interesting, and what a, 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 a hypocrisy, because the rainbow flag and the Confederate flag, they're both flags of intimidation. They really mean the same thing. The same people pulling down the Confederate flag are putting up these rainbow flags, and they're both symbols of intimidation. They both say certain people groups are not able to come here. The Confederate flag says no blacks. The rainbow flag says no Christians. And I tell you, I heard from the, the, the intolerance police so aggressively that we had to shut our office for a few days. And I had to actually move out of my personal home as a result of just expressing my opinion in the public square. So how did we get here? Well, I think that one of the reasons that we're here is because the left declared war on uh, our culture, uh, three wars in particular. and. What's challenging most for me, whether they want to fight a war or not, is that the poor are the ones that are getting caught up in the middle of this war and they're being very severely damaged. They're the most vulnerable in our country are being hurt by these policies more than anyone else. You know, the people that are in Washington lobbying for these policies is really interesting because most of them are insulated uh, from these challenges. They come actually from very healthy households. They have a lot of money in the bank. And so the things that they're trying to force on the rest of us is not even going to affect them personally, but they really, really hit the poor. You know, they're scrubbing our schools from all reference to God. It weakened our public institutions. And it opened this culture of meaninglessness. And so now we have meaninglessness in government. No one even trusts the government anymore. The very people that make our laws. And I had somebody tell me, so I don't like Washington because too many lawyers, and I'm like, uh, well, they make our law? Well, what do you want? They're engineers? Uh, because lawyers are in Washington, that's what they have to do. Uh, so, you know, but we've gotten to a place where you can't trust any of the initials, whether it's the IRS, the FBI, the CIA, just all of the lists of those that are supposed to be protecting our interests, we can't even trust them any longer because there's just no consistency in why we believe what we believe as a country anymore. The second war they declared was this war on marriage uh, through that feminist movement, and it weakened women, and it opened the door to this culture of materialism. After two generations of the sexual revolution, marriage has totally collapsed. The marriage rates in our country have dropped almost in half for some communities. They dropped from 75% of the adult population in the 70s to only 45% today. Uh, for blacks, the adult marriage rates dropped from 65% uh, from, from in the 70s to 30% today. And that's why a lot of folks thought that the challenges we had that were confined just to the black community uh, we were fixable because if you could fix marriage and get people to understand that family is where you pass tradition, that maybe we can push up and heal ourselves from the drain uh, of, 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 of our society of all the financials that go into what happens when marriage collapses. Everyone knows that conjugal marriage is the capstone of all humanity, all civilization. It has been throughout the history of the world. But as a result of this collapse, now our public square is in chaos, and so it's creating much tension uh, between people that used to just get along. Homosexuality and monism is now dividing us and bringing it to the very question uh, of, of, the, of a personal responsibility and limited government. Who's going to win this debate now that all the lawyers are in town to say, is it sexual integrity or is it religious integrity that's going to win? That we now have court cases, um, lots and lots of court cases, trying to settle a question that, frankly, should be one of personal responsibility and one of privacy. Um, you know, in fact, I had a debate on one college campus. They said, well, you, you guys came out there and I said, excuse me, no, you brought the bedroom to the public square. When you bring your bedroom to the public square, then the public gets to debate. And what has happened as a result of that particular debate is parents and priests said no. And now we have a tremendous discussion which has swelled the role of government in all of our lives as a result. Abortion has deeply hurt us. 
What's the very premise of humanity and the 14th Amendment protections that it is to provide? A 68 million dead in 44 years should give us all great cause, regardless of whether you think that um, you know you want to have a right to kill what God calls His reward or not. When you think about us collectively to kill all 68 million in 44 years, knowing after we can see now into the womb uh, with the ultrasound, so we can no longer pretend that it's not alive in a child, knowing that Planned Parenthood is selling baby parts, knowing that Gosnell is collecting baby parts, and in fact, uh, during that trial in Philadelphia, when Gosnell was on a drug bus, got busted for just having baby parts everywhere, they had the janitor come into the court uh, to testify. He's trying to get off the hook, but probably why were there so many body parts uh, that were clogged up into the toilet. They had the garbage disposal in the courtroom, the toilet in the courtroom, the sinks in the courtroom, uh, because there was just such an overflow of all of these pieces of children that Gosnell had killed there. The third war that the left declared on our society, and these all three wars happened exact same period of time during the 60s, was this war on poverty. And it weakened family, and it opened the door to this culture of entitlement. I know firsthand the rules of welfare. Don't work, don't save, don't get married, and we'll just kind of keep you a slave to a poverty plantation. And most of the people that are dwelling in that particular scenario want freedom, they want to get out, but yet the left system keeps, we're just going to be, keeps the system, we're just going to keep you trapped and keep you illiterate and, and, and make sure that you never are able to escape because it's just too much invested uh, for those that are the elite. Um, this whole concept of redistribution of wealth is inconsistent with private property rights. You know, my granddad, I never met the man, but he was um, one generation out of slavery, and I understand he had to eat it. That if you want to stay free, you need two things, property and a gun. And notice both are under tremendous attack now that you can't keep private property and or your Second Amendment rights of protection. Just even listen to the discussions today are making me just really, really upset when it comes to uh, background checks and other types of instruments that they're trying to put into law to just peel away with Second Amendment rights, in particular with the history of background checks. Most people don't even realize that the first background checks were in the 1800s because they were afraid that too many of the free black slaves, free black men, if they owned a weapon, they would go and free the black slaves. So they were the first to get their guns confiscated. And the second time we saw this type of confiscation, um, the language that we're hearing today, by the same group of people, the Democrats were behind it then as well. Um, of the same time, the second time we saw it was after the four million were free from slavery. That the first thing they did was pull away their weaponry, and there were many cases going trying to get to the courts. And one actually got to the court that said, "Wait a minute! If we're now free people, and the Fourteenth Amendment has given us one hundred percent of citizenship, then we should also be available to that Second Amendment to, to bear arms." And in fact, the NRA, which is in a hot seat today, the reason that they were founded was because so many lynchings were occurring of black men that were just trying to make a living after slavery ended, and the law didn't allow them to own weaponry. Is why the NRA founded itself so that it could help stop that in, um, onslaught of the KKK uh, during that time before blacks participated in bearing arms. Most of the challenges that we see in our hardest hit black communities is because they have uh, no, uh, they're gun-free safe zones and therefore the only people that are armed are those that are doing the community harm. You know, the, this is an absolute uh, principle of freedom, property, and yet this whole concept of redistribution of wealth is a violation of private property. It's also a violation of the scripture for anyone that believes the Bible. You know, the Ten Commandments says don't covet. And socialism is rooted in covetousness. You know, when you really think about it, somebody has something somebody else doesn't have, so now we hire politicians to take it from them. So that's theft. And so now you've got people of goodwill forced into 
violating two of the commandments that they hold dear uh, just because of this idea of redistribution of wealth. But redistribution of wealth under the guise of social justice, the worst challenge with it, in my opinion, outside of even those two, which are horrific, is that it actually um, violates the very social structure that one needs to even break out of the cycle of poverty. Because if you don't have a moral code of ethics and a rule of law, then the society is going to just diminished into what one social scientist called the tragedy of the commons. No one owns it, so no one takes care of it. And that's exactly what's happening in most of our Harvard communities. In fact, one of the things that has happened just in the tax bill alone on that particular question of tragedy of the commons, no one owns it, no one takes care of it. All of this blighted community uh, property that we see in most of our distressed zip codes, there was an answer to that. But in this current tax bill, and I bet not one of you heard about it because the the people that are supposedly care most about these particular communities and are actually the Congress people of those communities are doing everything they can to make sure that the community does not know what happened in that tax bill to their benefit so that the president won't get any credit. Well, the initiative was not the president put it in there. He just signed it law. The initiative was Senator Tim Scott and Senator Cory Booker from Jersey, Tim Scott from South Carolina. And what it says is if you own that property in these blighted communities, and you sell it, we won't charge you a capital gain. And if you put the capital gain into a, a fund that will revitalize that community, we'll give you even other tax benefit. But in order to qualify for it to be an opportunity zone, the governor of the state has to list those zip codes. And I don't see yet that any zip code in California has been listed, unfortunately, and there are only 10 days left because it was a 90-day window um, for that to occur. So when you have that tragedy of common, and it's, and, and then it's um, compiled with collectivism, nobody can speak outside of what the leaders have determined is right and correct for everybody else, uh, then you're not going to really make progress. And the people that are going to get hit the hardest and that, are, and that are going to be the sickest as a result are those that need our help as a society the most. And today, just far too many Americans are caught up in uh, this type of living pattern, moral relativism and government dependency. You know, we think about the nuclear family, I mentioned marriage and how it's collapsed that it has on the rest of us. In 1970, 40% of all American households were headed by a married couple with children. Today, that number is 18%. In the single family, in 1970, only 7% of American children lived with a mother who had never married. I mean, this is in the 70s. I know y'all don't know the 70s because you're just too, too, too young. Parents probably don't even know the 70s. But it really was the 70s. And, and this is when we were video apples. You might not remember. A lot of the culture that you have today did come from those same 70s. Well, during that body of time, we're talking within 10 years of the war on poverty beginning, 7% um, of American children lived with a mom who had never married. That was the number of all Americans that lived with a mom who had never married. In 2014, that number was 48%. Uh, we're coming unraveled as a society. In the black community, uh, the out-of-marriage birth rates moved from 22% in the 60s to 72% today, which is why we see a lot of the pathologies that we do, because when you have a single-head household, it's very difficult to live uh, in that structure and pass down values to those children where they will be affirmed on a regular basis with only uh, one parent trying to do the work of two. In the white community, uh, they moved from 3% out of the life birth rates in the 60s to 30% today, which is now why we're seeing the pathologies that we thought were only confined to the ghetto in our suburban communities. And now, with it being in a majority community, it's taken on a 
whole new life of its own. Uh, people are even doing a lot of thinking now in Washington, what do we do with these men that are not working that are now in the white community because it's, out, it's so um, record number out of control that two areas are a major social concern right now. It's getting a little pressed, but it will get a lot more pressed because it's incredible of the challenges that are coming um, from this phenomenon of white males not working. Uh, and one of that is that opiate crisis, and the other is the, um, uh, oh, oh, what, I forgot what the other one was. Oh, the suicide rate. The, the suicide rate is just skyrocketed with these um, dis detached white males. What, because, and the reason that these numbers are now coming out, why I thought suicide is because when you see these shootings and everyone's saying, oh, these are just white males, out of control, uh, and that's one of the common denominators, and then others are trying to look into whether the drugs involved, you know, some of these um, psychotic drugs and other things like that, but when, so what then happens, you notice, wait a minute, we're not just seeing deaths of our students in schools, we're seeing suicide rates in the same population escalate and skyrocket, which adds now other concerns, other social concerns. Well, there are three concerns that we should have based on uh, some of these patterns and what has happened to us as a moral state. Uh, even though I know, you know, even this organization, well, you know, we're a lot more libertarian-minded, and you hear this quite often now, it's all about the economic part of the coin, and we don't want to look at the other side of the coin and think about uh, the social issues too, uh, too closely. So you then have to say, well, why does it matter? What do we all care? What is the common denominator that we should care about some of the numbers and what other people are doing in their personal lives, whether they're not marrying and whether they don't have any type of religious affiliation? and or uh, they're having children outside of marriage and or they're getting involved in, um, in homosexual behaviors and or that they're getting involved in abortion behaviors. Why should we care? Well, there are three societal reasons we should care. Uh, one is the impact on child poverty. Uh, if you care, I mean, some people just really don't care. Uh, but if you do care, is there any reason that we as a society should be concerned about how we are collapsing on the moral front? Um, child poverty is one of them. Today, two-thirds of all poor children in America live in a single-head household. So we can pretend all households are the same, but two-thirds of poor children in America live in a single-head household. So if you say you care about poor children and child poverty, then you have to be concerned that this is one of the challenges. Eight percent of children live in America couple households are poor. Thirty-eight percent of children live in single households are poor. We have 400,000 orphans in our foster care system. So if we say we care, then we have to be concerned. 400,000, what happens when they're emancipated? Right now, when these children are emancipated, which in our country we do it at 18, in European countries they do it at 17, that's who's on Hollywood Boulevard. So if people say, well, I care about sexual trafficking, but then we should care about our foster because it's all connected. Once you're emancipated out of the system, what are your options? And if you're in the system, it's because there are challenges. We're not seeing these rates of orphans and or of displaced children and poor children in households where you have the husband married to the mother of the children. And in fact, a lot of the analysis are also showing us that even it causes the racial lines, because some people will try to pretend that these are racial challenges, and they'll, they'll try to throw it off on, oh, this is just America being racist, and that's why it disproportionately is blacks. And every time you address poverty, you're just like the blacks, and so we're not even allowed to talk about it. Well, the other data is also clear that if the, when you're talking about a, a white husband married to the mother of the children and a black husband married to the mother of the children, we can't even measure the income rate difference. There's no gap. We can't measure it. It's too little. There's no educationally, you can't measure it. You can't measure it um, in crime. 
But where we see the differences is when there's a single household. And so when you have disproportionate number of single households, you have a larger gap, education, crime, and poverty. And what's really fascinating is much stats coming out of AEI, the American Enterprise Institute now that we're following up for a cure, that's showing that with this new phenomenon, with these white males disconnected and not marrying, uh, and not then socializing uh, through marriage, we're seeing that their poverty rates are higher than, and crime rates, and lack of educational rates than where you have a black male who's married to the mother of the children. So anyone that tries to pretend that this is a racial uh, dilemma based on slavery and or um, Jim Crow is not looking at the data whatsoever, and they're being totally disingenuous because it's really clear. And these days you can't say it was hidden because you have a iPhone that would pull up anything. You just have to put it in there, poverty rate, and, and everything will come up. Uh, we have three million children living in our public housing. Four children struggle in school and have tremendous difficulty becoming proficient in math and reading. And here again, it disproportionately hits the African-American community because the African-American community was the first to believe these lies to the left. So went in real early to government dependency, which then collapsed their families. And now we're looking at math scores and reading scores that should give us all uh, levels of positive. In the case of black children, the 2015 NAEP, which is our assessment, it's like our national report card, it just saddens me greatly. The math scores only 17% of black fourth graders and 11% of black eighth graders perform at proficient levels. In reading, 16% of black uh, fourth graders and 15% of black eighth graders are proficient, but yet all of the left fights against school choice where money follows children to, uh, to the schools the parents want. Because what we find is when folks are really trapped in single-head households and they're trapped in poor communities, then they're also trapped in government failing schools, they end up trapped in prison. And we would prefer that money follows children to the schools the parents want because when that's, we interject that dilemma into, or that dynamic into the children's lives, then the children have at least a shot at life outside of just all that the mom can try to do on behalf of her children. Now, in the educational system, uh, she's getting the kind of things that she thinks that she needs so that she can get her child up to proficiency in reading and or math. Uh, the second society that reason that we should care is crime. Just crime. Some people care about crime. You know, some live in gated communities that might not care as much as uh, others that live behind bars uh, because the, the criminals are not. Um, but crime is one of the reasons that we should care. Bookshelves are sagging with data that shows with crystal clear clarity that unmarried men are promiscuous men. And promiscuous men produce unproductive men. And unproductive men are often dangerous men. Uh, and we can try to pretend this is a racial question here again, but 70% of the youth in our criminal justice system are from single-headed households. 70% single-headed households. Now, you can pretend it's other things, but when marriage is a factor, uh, you don't see the rates. You don't see the crime rates. You don't see the lack of educational aspirations. You don't see the adequate allowed birth rates. And you certainly don't see the higher birth rates. 95% of the men that are in our federal prison system have no relationship with their dad. Uh, what we have to start doing is take very seriously uh, the diminishment of our society. And that's the third, uh, final reason that we should care is just diminish morale. Uh, the great society of secular statism has had great costs, both emotional costs and economic costs. And it's just broken us down as a society. We're not even neighborly anymore. Uh, we're segmented in a special interest groups, whether you want to be in that group or not. 
um, just based on whether it's your ethnicity or whether it's based on your income level, whether it's based on your sexual orientation now. I mean, the list is getting really long that we're supposed to now just be in that collective group and, and there's no venturing out whatsoever. Uh, and, and it's taken a toll. It's taken an economic toll on us. In fact, the federal government now takes 25% of the American economy, forcing us, the public square, to be a constant battleground. You know, people are talking all the time about the lobbyists that come out of Washington. The reason there's so many lobbyists in Washington is because government is so big. Of course there are lobbyists. And in fact, last week when special interests were paid to the steel uh, companies, the lobbyists came in the next day. It was like flooding. Uh, with the new lobbyists, and on every single issue, there are always going to be lobbyists, even when people try to pretend they're just trying to get their fair share, and or they're trying to just get their now the, what they call civil rights or equal rights. Um, you know, after homosexuality marriage became the law of the land. Uh, I mean, now we have entirely new structures of lawyers to write, rewrite every law in the land because that's what has to happen when you change something that dramatically in a culture uh, where marriage has been defined for two thousand uh, years. Uh, in, in the New Testament history, 6,000 Old Testament history, and certainly in this country for 200 years. Now you change that law, you have to change all law um, that, re that relates to family and family life. Uh, and so that's what has now expanded the government. Uh, the economic cost poverty alone is really big business. $24 trillion since the war on poverty began. It's one of the reasons that no one's heard of these opportunity zones right now, because if you hear about it, people start getting free, and, and, and the economy's coming to these poor communities, a whole lot of people are going to lose a whole lot of money because poverty is incredibly a big business. Uh, we're looking into, right now, a study with HUD, that on, on HUD housing, of how many of these congressional black caucus members that say that they care about the community actually own these uh, slums, and therefore make sure that the prices stay really high, uh, and full of people that are getting a little voucher for Section 8, uh, and they may want no other economy in those communities so that they uh, won't have any competition. The federal government now spends $900 billion annually on these uh, anti-poverty programs. And you know, I wouldn't mind so much, I suppose, if I could find one that works, there's not one that works. I might not mind so much if I, and don't want to name one. If you want to name one that works, I, I, I will be open for that. I wouldn't mind so much if only 20 cents on a dollar to reach your household. Of that $900 billion that we spend every year on anti-poverty programs, does the 20 cents on a dollar actually reaches the household that we say we're trying to help. The rest of it is just in bureaucracy. And we reach a dangerous mass of special interests. We have just too much stake in big government, whether they're employed by it, collecting benefits from it, or businesses getting papers from it. And we would be able to argue the ag bill. When we're arguing the ag bill, which is where food stamps is, it's not the welfare mom showing up saying, don't touch my food stamps. No, it's J.P. Morgan because they manage that $90 billion. It's Kraft Foods because um, cheese is 10% of their cheese market because we force our welfare moms to buy cheese. It's, um, well, this, this last one was really interesting. It was Amazon Prime. Because they feel that, well, hey, we give a discount to these women. We sell some food. We want to give a stuck EBT card, too. It's McDonald's. Wondering, well, how come uh, Walmart gets to take the card? We can't take the card. And the EBT card itself uh, is big business right now. The, 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 the state card, our state card, has our state flag on it. I mean, they move more beautiful than the best of um, American Express cards in the country. And you just swipe it if you go into any store now with it. Uh, even if it's Trader Joe's, it's going to say um, debit, credit, EBT, and it's one of the reasons that we can't 
seemed to get that swamped in fast enough. Uh, in 1960, 20% of Americans got more from government than they put in. Today, 60% of Americans get more from government than they put in. And there's one of the reasons we're in such debt and why you should care and why I'm staying on these campuses because when you think about it, your generation is the one that's going to get hit hardest by all of this extra spending uh, that's going on in Washington, D.C. without the resources to take care of um, keeping it going. In fact, most of the systems that are in Washington, if they were a business on their own, they would be illegal in the country because they're built on government schemes. They're built on schemes thinking that, you know, current workers are going to last forever. They're built on thinking that the life of, the, of yesterday was going to continue, where grandma had nine, mama had five. Uh, and yet we have a society bought a lie that children are environmental hazards, so don't have too many, and people don't. Uh, and now as a result, uh, that period is turned upside down, so your generation has shrunk uh, to where all of these political promises are going to end us up in a real challenging place over time, the same way most of the um, states where they allow the unions to make these type of promises are now in deep trouble as the unions uh, have to now pay the bills on all of those that they promised to pay their full retirement, and then those folks leave the state, and there's no economic tax base left in that state. That's what's happened in many of our states in the Northeast, and it's just uh, a major challenge to try to now figure out what to do when you had 600,000 people in your area, and now you have 100,000 people in your area to pay the taxes, but you promised 200,000 people that you were going to retire them, and not only retire them, they're living into their 90s. Uh, it's, it's just a very complicated situation for us to try to figure out as a society. And so that's why we have to start transitioning ourselves from uh, this government dependency. That's on the economic side. The, uh, the emotional costs are also high. We're just not even a free people anymore. Um, when, you, when judges get to redefine truth, you're just not free. When we have to depend on the courts to determine how we're going to even live together and how our lives touch each other, we're not free. When they can send us into these special interest groups based on our race or our gender or our income or our assets, our sexual identification, just to further these social experiments that throughout history have been uh, proven to reduce mankind to savagery. They haven't worked anywhere, and yet people are just, just invested that they're going to be able to work here. Uh, and we're looking at all of the damage that is being done as a result to where we are not free. If we didn't learn anything else from slavery and Jim Crow, we should have learned that force is just not an American ideal. So anytime you try to force people to do something that they don't want to do in America, you're going to have an opposition. And we ran in opposition not just during slavery where we ended up in a civil war, but we had an opposition in the civil rights era as well, because force is just not an American ideal. Um, we have great challenges. Out of control debt, broken families, and slavery to the government is just not a formula for a great country. Uh, but the good news is we can change. And the good news is that every part of our country that is free from government is going pretty well. I mean, you think about Uber. Uh, I mean, I do love that Uber, and I know that they're under attack, and the unions hated them and tried to run them out of business, but it's really uh, challenging uh, to, to run the internet out of business, especially with youth, because they don't seem to, uh, to get the fact that somebody doesn't want them to have that kind of freedom. Uh, so they continue to use these things. And frankly, um, when you think about American entrepreneurial enterprise that's on the internet, it's not only opening in droves, but it's also colorblind. You know, so that same old story about how America is so inherently racist and we will not be able to ever mainstream, obviously that person should buy themselves an iPhone because now they, are, they don't ask you. In fact, if they, if they do want to know what color your card is and you tell them it's black, then you really get doors open because the black American express card goes a long way. <laughs> American productivity where people are really wholesome and are still free is going just fine. It's where we see political force and big government. That's where we're stagnant. So what we have to do is change.
we're going to have to change. And that's what this last election was about, whether you like the election or not, we have various opinions about it or not, or whether you're just going to protest for the next 15 years. Uh, because Donald Trump will be in town for seven, and Mike Pence will be the president for eight after that. So that's about 15 years to turn around this shit that has been going down the wrong way for quite a long time. And so we need to change. So how are we going to change? What is it that's going to occur uh, for us to get these changes? Uh, well, there are three things that we're working on in our organization. You know, I'll be able to do the Q&A, and I'll be finished in a minute to start taking questions, answer a few questions, but uh, on issues that we don't specialize in, I doubt I'll answer them because it was not my specialty. I'm not in it, and I'm certainly not the leaker out of Washington. But there are three things that we really want, we fight for at Cure. Uh, one is the end legal abortion. Uh, abortion is not salvation. It's actually a crime against humanity, and we shouldn't be doing it. And in addition to the moral and medical implications with abortion uh, and the, 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 the medical, we, know, we just know too much to keep lying to ourselves, but abortion feeds this narrative of victimhood. And as a result of feeding this narrative, as if women have no control over their sexual impulses, now what's happened is we've reduced even abortion down to safety net. And so abortion now is the most deadly safety net. And as African Americans have been targeted by Planned Parenthood and other organizations to kill their offspring, uh, and boy, they didn't want that offspring killed off. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, and she wanted to make sure that the, what she called human weed did not grow in this country. They didn't have children. So she was behind the sterilization movements, and as well, uh, they are invested very heavily in abortion because as long as it's legal, then they can get away with making sure that black numbers never reach more than 13% of the United States population. And they're doing a really good job, uh, unfortunately, uh, because what's happened, these left-wingers, uh, their messages of secularism and big government safety nets have moved African-American communities from slavery through Jim Crow, from Jim Crow to a welfare state. And in that welfare state, five years after King's death, we have Roe v. Wade as national law. So what has happened to blacks as a result of this uh, targeting of Planned Parenthood and the investment of most black leaders to make sure that Planned Parenthood stays in business to kill black children? Well, let's see what they've been doing over the last... Um, uh, uh, 40-some years that we've that abortion's been legal. So it's about 1,400 a day, about 40,000 a month, 500,000 a year, uh, 18 million since Roe v. Wade, just in this one community alone. And it's going to be wondered that in our hard-hit communities we're dealing with such devastation and people are drowning in uh, moral madness. So we're, we're destined to end that because legalized abortion is an impediment for people to take responsibility over their own sexual decisions. Uh, the second thing that we're changing in Washington, we're working toward a block granting all uh, welfare and entitlement programs to the states, including education policy and housing policy. This is not work that should be done in Washington, D.C. Uh, states are where we should be looking for ways to remove all barriers for flexibility, mobility, and prosperity. We should not have people forced to live in communities that they don't want to live in simply because they're down in their luck and they went to our federal government. Uh, this is not a good idea. It's not working well for any uh, of these communities. And they're making some major changes over at HUD to make sure that money follows the woman to where she wants to live instead of trapping her into a zip code that doesn't work and nothing inside of that zip code works. The poor more than anyone need help getting their children out of these government schools and get from under these government health care policies, housing policies, welfare policies, wage policies, and retirement policies. You know, enough cannot be said about school choice and parental options. 
uh, for money to follow you. So it, it, it's incredible that in California, we tried a couple of times so money can follow children to the schools the parents want. But yet the insistence of the unions even to try to stop charter schools, which are government schools, they don't want any flexibility for people to actually be able to learn and grow out of the circumstances. But this is the only place that a civil and free society gets to interject its, inter, interject its values into other people's children is in the classroom. Is it? It, whatever the set of circumstances that someone is being brought up in, we're not China, so we're not going to have internet con controls. And we're not Iran, we're not going to do something about, um, you know, making sure that entertainment doesn't get to the folks. No, it's K through 12. This is where we as a free society can redirect the culture of our youth. So what we need to do is consider school choice and how important it is. One example that I point to quite often is when people look at, compare Michael Brown and Simone Biles. Most people know those two names. They know Michael Brown died in the streets of Ferguson. They know Simone Biles when he got us the gold. What's the difference in their lives? Well, they both were born into the same set of circumstances. Tragedy of the commons. They both had a chaotic beginning. But the difference was Michael Brown, he grew up bigger than his peers. He then goes to a high school that two weeks before he was killed in the streets of Ferguson, he had received his high school diploma from. And that school had lost its accreditation. It was a worthless piece of paper. But he was trapped in it because Missouri has what they call a Blaine Amendment. We have 39 states that have Blaine Amendments, which means that they have passed into law these left-wing and serious liberals to where you cannot get your child out of those failing schools because they've written it into their constitutions. So they're called Blaine. So now we have these states, and Missouri's a Blaine state. So his mama, even if she wanted to get him help, couldn't because it's against the law. Well, on the other hand, you have Simone Miles. What happened to her? Well, in the same set of circumstances, she went into the foster system, and her grandfather got her out. He went and adopted her out, uh, got her and her sister out of that. Then they put her into a Catholic school. They had the resources to be able to say, we don't want you trapped in a school that's lost its accreditation. We want to give you school choice. She went into Catholic school, and then she was homeschooled. And what's really fascinating is that she was homeschooled. We love her. She got the gold. But yet in this very state, there, this folks up there in Sacramento are making sure that homeschoolers are in constant battle to stay open because they don't think that parents should be able to educate their own children because it's really about collectivism and trapping them in either family schools and or indoctrination centers. Well, Simone Biles didn't live in California, so her parents were able to, uh, her, her, her granddad, who became her dad, and his wife, her step-mom, her step who became her mom, and she then was able to get a good degree and then go on and get us the, 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 the goal. Uh, school choice, there's just, there's just, enough cannot be said on how important this is if we really care about poor people and help their children uh, get a quality life in this country. And the third and final thing that must be done to fix our country from the bottom up and one of the things that we're working on is the personalized social security. And there's uh, it's just an important implication of the personalized social security for poor Americans, in particular black Americans. Uh, for the Federal Reserve, in 2016, the median black family net worth was 17,600, about 10% of the median white net worth. you got to have capital if you're going to transition out of poverty. you got to own it. And in order for blacks to finally get ahead, and for poor Americans to get ahead, they have to have one generation to transfer wealth. Where are they going to get it from? Well, 
6.2 is coming out of your check from you, 6.2 is coming out of your check from your boss, and it's put into a little dark hole called Social Security. The Supreme Court has ruled twice that Social Security is just a tax. Congress can change it at any time. It is not a retirement fund. It's not a trust fund. It's not there. It is a tax where current workers pay for current retirees. The challenge for African Americans, and especially the 19% of blacks who have zero or negative network, is that every generation that money just stays in that pot because there are only two factors to Social Security that are considered on what you're going to be able to get after a lifetime of work. Those two factors are work patterns and life expectancy. So the people that fare best in our current Social Security structure are, are white women. Why does this happen? And who gets the worst hit? Black males. Why does this happen? Well, because there's only two factors, work patterns. Generally speaking, black men enter the workforce sooner. They don't go to college or the record numbers of other populations go. They enter the workforce sooner. They work at a lower wage job, and then they work over their life, and they die young. Why white women do they fare better? Because they only consider work patterns and life expectancy. White women have patterns, they go into the workforce, they leave to raise their children, they come back into the workforce, work at a higher income level, and then they live long. They even live longer than their husbands. I don't know what they're doing to their husbands that they live longer than they do. So they fare better. So for every black male that dies before his 65th birthday, he is just transferred to Boca Raton. Uh, his wealth, his family will not get it because you don't own it. You can't transfer it and get a lousy rate of return, even if you could. So what we want is for money to follow people to where they want it to go. Instead of sending it to IRS, you should be sent it to an IRA. And that's one of the things that we're fighting on. The same way that money should follow children to the schools the parents want, the money should follow, the retirement fund should follow the worker to where he wants to invest that money. And we really believe that uh, they should be able to invest in uh, in IRA if they want to. Freedom and ownership is the key to breaking the cycle of poverty, period. Freedom and ownership. When people ask all the time, why are they burning down their own community? They don't own it. Why do they hate Wall Street? They don't own it. You had a past book that owned Wall Street. You think a little capitalism a little bit more seriously in profit if you owned it. Uh, and that's, so, that's the solution to a lot of the challenges that we're having now. The opportunity to build wealth is one of the most amazing benefits of our free country. And yet, we have barriers in the way from the people that need it the most to build network, transferable wealth. Uh, one of those barriers are uh, Social Security. So that's it. Uh, in closing, I just want to tell, I always have to tell everybody this little recent quote I saw in Forbes magazine because I thought it was the best quote uh, for the work that we're trying to do. And we are working on getting these three things done. And there's energy in Washington to uh, move some of these ideas forward. So we're extremely excited uh, as an organization, Urban Cure. Uh, and the Forbes quote said that you can't change things by fighting the existing reality. To change things, you must build a new model to make the existing model obsolete. Well, the existing model to help our nation forward is not working. So I've committed, Derek, I see Derek in the room, our Executive Vice President of CURE, and our team, and our board, and our donors, we've all committed to building a new model to make the existing model of how we handle poverty uh, in this country obsolete. So I pray that you'll help, and if you don't, I just pray you stay out of my way, because we're going to get it done. Thank you. <laughs>
Um, okay, so I think if we have everyone like over here who wants to do questions. Hi, Star. Um, you know, thank you for coming. Um, I'm a libertarian, so we agree on a lot of things. Um, I'm also a Catholic, so you know, I'm. Yeah, I stay true to my Catholic faith. But um, I just want to know why. Yeah, I mean. Why are you against gay marriage or homosexuality? Homosexuality. I mean, I have two different questions. People can participate in homosexuality if they want to, if they want to. But gay marriage, marriage is already defined. You see, you're Catholic. Marriage has already been defined. What we did was had a rewrite of law to incorporate homosexuals into an institution that was already existing. So as a result of that, is all law in the country has to change. But as a result of that, is we have one of our pastors said, he said, you know, the difference between this sin and other sins, this sin hired a lobbyist. Hiring a lobbyist is changing all other reality. Most sin doesn't hire a lobbyist, you just sin. But uh, when your sin affects other people's lives as a libertarian, you should appreciate that you're going to get pushback because most people don't want to be forced to do something that uh, will compromise them, in particular if it compromises their, their values or their worldview. So the best thing for us to do as a country on these questions of sexuality is limit the role of government. But in order to limit the role of government, you need to keep it private. And what has happened as a result of the LGBTQ uh, community and their activism, did I rip their tea yet? Because that was going to get right now. Is that they're forcing all society to not only make judgments, but to change the society and how we normally uh, do business as a, as a people, including our taxes. I mean, you're talking about even Social Security law having to change. This is a dramatic uh, um, transition as a nation that I don't think people are considering, in particular when it comes to the cost. It's not just about the moral battle that they're, uh, and, and I don't think. You know, one of the challenges that most people have with this is this new uh, cultural dilemma is that is neither side seems to back down. The homosexuals are insisting, and their activists are not all homosexuals, just their activists are insisting in being in the public square. But in order for them to be in the public square, they want religious people to denounce their religion. That just doesn't happen throughout history, in particular when you're talking about Catholic. I don't know how much expression you've seen in Catholicism, but my God, the, the martyrdom that went on as a result of them saying, well, know, we're, we'll, we'll just die for this. In fact, I visited the catacombs on one of my trips to Italy. I go to Italy every year for my case and my fashion. And when I visited the catacombs this particular year, uh, they, we saw graves where they built them big enough for the whole family because they knew that was what was going to happen. So Because they're just not going to give up their faith. And so for this insistence, that Christians live in, in in dark spaces, I just don't know that it's going to happen. We could end up in another civil war over it because you're just not going to find too many that want to go underground. You're not going to be able to lock up all the pastors uh, to keep them from preaching over the pulpit. We've seen this happen before as well in history, and it just it doesn't usually fare well. Uh, and one of the other concerns that I have about this whole onslaught of atheism trying to displace Christianity in our country is atheist countries are big government countries, and big government countries are atheist countries, and so therefore people are forced to do things that they don't want to do on a very, very regular basis. And I just like freedom too much. I just don't want to be forced to do things I don't want to do. Okay.
second part. Um, yeah, so then would you agree that then government as a whole should get out of the business of marriage so it shouldn't define marriage between men and uh, women? Well, or well there's, a reason that, there's a reason that government is involved in marriage. Right, I mean, they're, they're called children. children. No, this is the only reason. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't be involved. The only reason you have to get a marriage license is if you have children. So they protect children. The government's role in marriage was to protect children. That it attacks you, but their role was just to protect children. And in fact, what's really fascinating, the anti-sodomy laws that the homosexual community reached into Texas to overturn, the Lawrence decision that opened the door for gay marriage, that wasn't even about homosexuality. Those sodomy laws were put in place because that time in the history, women didn't work out of the home. So they were dependent on their husbands. So they put in anti-sodomy laws because you didn't have no-fault divorce laws to protect women if she was in a compromised situation with the man she was married to and she didn't want it, she was being forced to do things she didn't want to do. So we had anti-sodomy laws so she would have financial recourse if she left that marriage. So what we've done as a result of getting rid of all of these anti-sodomy laws and opening the door for no-fault divorce, we've opened up this whole new window for people in dire straits. Because now, if you leave a relationship, then you're, there's a big battle over the children, because wherever gets the children, it's the money. And so we've, we've, we've increased our problems. Situational ethics don't work for a society. So yeah, the only reason that the government is involved in marriage at all law is for children's sake, what happens if this union doesn't work? So the children need a protection. What's happening as a result now of homosexual marriage? You have an onslaught now of the religious communities not even telling the state. So, so uh, what do you call it? Like marriage? Oh, well, not the conjugal part of it, but the um, heterosexual marriage is now unraveling as a result. Or it's not, even, it's not showing up. People are just not making whole unions anymore. But then also not having a lot of children. So, but that's the only reason that we had marriage involvement in the state, is to protect the children. Yeah. So that, you know, there's no other interest for them except taxes and children. So how do you feel about, how do you feel about gay couples um, adopting I, children then? Well, that, that's why the lawyers and lobbyists are in town, and that's the question now that, believe it or not, we've opened the door for the, for the courts to have to decide. It's just incredible. So it depends on who's on the court. And that's why we had a battle, and that's why the whole religious communities in our society, the evangelical Protestants, voted for Donald Trump, because they're very concerned about the court, because when you change these laws, it affects their stability as Christian people. They're under heavy persecution right now. Uh, uh, Kellen Cochran, he's a fire, he's a fire chief in Atlanta, but he wrote a book for his church that talked about marriage between male and female, and he lost his job. This is happening all over the country. The court case that's at, uh, that right now the feds just heard, the, the Supreme Court just heard, and they'll have a decision now. Uh, that Jack case, what is that about a baker? What, um, uh, he, he bakes cakes, but he did not want to bake one that expressed that the expression on the cake was something that he didn't want to be forced to do. No more than somebody that that, that um, you know is printing T-shirts and and they and they don't want to print a KKK shirt. They should be able to say, "No, it's all right. I don't want that." When you go down the street and get that shirt. So when we start forcing through law for people to do things that they don't want to do, where does it stop? 
So what's happened as a result of homosexual marriage, it didn't stop there. It's, it, what began to happen is exactly the scenario you're saying. They're now insisting on pressing into the adoption areas of our society. So in the adoption areas of our society, you have religious people. The interesting thing about these atheists and these folks that are, do not consider themselves religious, they don't do the social services either. So what's happened in particular in our foster system, all the social service providers are religiously oriented. Catholic charities, they're, they're, they're the ones who tend to our orphans. They're the ones who scrape our homeless up off of the street when they, when they die and give them their last rights. So now we have a dilemma because this community has insisted that we now you must, you're going to be forced by law to adopt into these homosexual households. Well, most of them are saying, and their leaderships are saying, we can't do that. So they're leaving the business. And the secularists, the, the homosexuals themselves, are not in the service providing business. They don't, they don't run orphanages. So now as a society, we're in a real interesting and difficult place. Because the people that are getting hit hardest by all this are the ones that need civil society to come to their rescue. But the, the providers of our charity in the country are more often than not religiously affiliated. So the people that do the work, the church, they roll up their sleeves and they do the work. They're the ones there for when somebody's uh, in domestic violence situation. They're the ones that are there when somebody is uh, in, in child abuse. They're the ones there when somebody's leaving a, a, a difficult uh, abusive marriage. They're the ones there. And so what's happened now with this onslaught of secularism is forcing that group to leave that business. And so that's one of the dilemmas of homosexuals adopting. But the court will decide, and we will live through that experiment, and I guess some people are hoping it fares well to see if they can run Catholic uh, out of the adoption business, and we'll see who decides to adopt, and, you know, who decides to do the service of adoption. You know, since we're really interesting, all the social figures and those that look at the numbers, the minute homosexual marriage became national law and it was all over the newspapers, the rates have fallen now. Because and they moved on to now religious liberty debates, and so now uh, the courts are being flooded with religious liberty uh, challenges. <laughs> Who's who, whose rights in the public square? That's why sexual behaviors and sexual patterns should be private. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, let's let's we because we, we don't be all even. Thank you for your questions. But yeah, let's keep the questions. I'll keep my answer short too. So. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And a couple things that I jotted down where you stated that orphans were the people that ended up on uh, Hollywood Boulevard, and these orphans are often given up because their birth givers cannot financially support them. Uh, so I, in this circumstance, the only alternative would be for the person, or to rectify orphanage or abortion would be for these women to raise the child themselves. No, 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 you read a lot into what I said. First of all, okay. no, I said 400,000. Children are in our foster system. Yeah, but you can't ask a question with all those non-facts. Okay, come back. Yeah. I was talking about emancipation of, which means they turned 18. But go ahead. I'm just trying to get a better answer. Yeah, okay. But um, I had done a little research and I saw that 42% of women who had had abortions had a median income, um, or had income below 100% of the federal poverty level. So that's about $10,830 for a single woman without children. So my question was, do you expect that um, that these children would become wards of the state, uh, simply with like as Medicare recipients, or will the state be able to allocate costs? I think that it is um, uh, it, it, one of the things that drives the abortion industry's debate. 
are people that insist that if you're poor, your child is worthless, which is what the conclusion just was. If that pregnant woman has that child, she's going on welfare. It's going to be a ward of the state. The people that are wards of the state are not necessarily from welfare. So you're mixing a lot of difficulties to try to make the case for killing the offspring, killing a human in the womb. Uh, in fact, the University of Chicago actually tried to pull that off. They did a study. They said it was a study. And what they did was said, well, because of abortion, we've actually reduced the crime rate because we focused abortion on these black and poor communities. Well, how do you know you didn't reduce the doctor rates? How do you know you didn't reduce the scientist rates? Where did we get to the conclusion that because you focus abortion on black people, that you reduce crime rates? Which is what you're saying. They're in the foster system. They must be welfare. Wouldn't you have preferred that they died? Because if we kill them, it only costs, what did you say? $800. But if we have to support them, we have this all the time from the left. If we have to support them on welfare, it's going to cost 40000 But if we kill them, it's only eight. So let's kill them. I understand the question, but no, I would prefer not to kill them. Okay? Next. I have many questions, but due to the time constraints, I'm going to keep it simple with one. Um, just going along with the narrative that you stated don't that. You said don't keep it simple. No, I'm, I'm, I'm specifically dealing with the narrative that uh, I understand that, yes, there are more broken homes and, you know, dealing in the African American community. I understand that. I, disagree with the reasons why that you have stated, but just dealing with that narrative that there are many broken homes in the community, you led to, it led to you saying that it produces certain individuals that have a lower work ethic and whatnot to cause more problems in society. Am I correct at this point? No, I didn't mention work ethic, but I did mention educational aspirations. I did mention crime and poverty. Those are the three places where we study. But work ethic, um, is there... They're probably, I didn't mention work ethics, so I'd have to think about, in, in relation to your question, those that are disproportionate single-headed households, how it impacts work. Is that what, what your question is? No, that's not my question. I was just trying to make sure I was quoting correctly. But then I also do have quotes from you talking about how they have a lack of ethics and they have a lack of vision. Uh, I'd, I'd encourage you to check your notes. But at the end of the day, what I... What lack of ethics and marriage. The two, the two social stabilizers that are missing. I understand your position, is, okay. but I'd like to continue my question. Please. Yeah, please. thank you. Um, just moving forward, the idea is that, but according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 2015, you actually see a decrease in the amount of white American in the in the amount of white Americans actually looking and actively searching for work, while you see an increase in the amount of African Americans actually actively searching and looking for work. So right. goes to show that they actually have a little bit more vision and all these values and ethics that you talk about, but yet you see more white people actually trying to take advantage of things such as this welfare system that you hate so much, but then you see African Americans actually actively looking. For facing many adversities, which I can go down the list of we can talk about. Right. Actually, you're right. No, you're right. The, 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 the uh, unemployment rate in black America came down for the first time below all numbers since we've been collecting data just this past December. And I did mention in my presentation that we're starting to see these increases in that white unmarried male population. Uh, 
I was talking about work rates. Okay, you know what? You just want to debate because I think that what you're what you're trying to do is say that I am trying to say that this is an ethnic problem, where I clearly said it is not. It's marriage and ethics, and it doesn't matter what color you are. These 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 stats are challenging because of worldview, because of, of decisions that people are making, not based on ethnicity. And I also said in my presentation, the reason that it disproportionately hit black people is because blacks were the poorest when they started the social engineering. It wasn't because they were black, it was that they were poor. So they were being paid to have children outside of marriage. This is what the welfare state was. The rules that don't work, don't say you get married. They even had movies. Black history is full of movies that show this is damaging us. And most blacks would assess, at least they did 25 years ago, that this was not a good idea for our community. But I get it that now it's part of black culture to say it is a part of our community. So that's fine. But the numbers don't lie. And yet, and the numbers you're pointing to also don't lie, that we are starting to see some return. And this is one of the reasons that I'm pushing this opportunity initiative that I think that you should look at and get engaged in, because this is the next component to trying to heal black communities. If we fill that blight with work, with opportunities to work, business, then you're going to start seeing more increase on the economic standpoint as well. It's just the way it is. And so, and so, and that's new law. And it is law. So the best thing that people can do right now that are in communities where they're distressed zip codes and they're concerned, regardless of the ethnicity of the people in the zip code, which is my point, it was my point, regardless of the ethnicity of the people in those zip codes, we have a window of opportunity to fix those distressed zip codes. All of the properties that outline all of the communities that were inside of the communities are homeowners and people manicuring their lawns. But the buildings on the outside are not owned by the people of the community. And what passed into law this past December is an opportunity for them to sell that property and not pay a capital gain so that that community can revitalize. But I understand what you're saying. If you want to compare white to black, male to female, honey, I'm telling you, the white community is just as in trouble because the question is not about ethnicity. It's marriage and ethics. The choices you make and did you marry. This is where the challenge is. And, 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 and the facts don't lie. So we can argue about it all night, but the facts are the facts. Where do you see marriage, black or white? And husbands married to the mother of the children, you do not see the low educational rates, you do not see the, the high crime rates, and you do not see the, um, the, the, the economic disparities. They just don't. They're just not there. It's where you don't see marriage and where you see single moms trying to raise children. Two are just better than one. You have two incomes and one rent, you got a little more money. It's just the facts. It's not racial. It's just the facts. And when you don't do life like that, it's hard. It's hard for a single mom to pay the rent and all the bills and expenses that go with that household without another partner helping in that. So that means her child has less opportunity to get the tutoring that they need, less opportunity to stay inside and away from gang activity to get them involved in crime, and less opportunity for them to sit down and, and, and stabilize their lives and get that first job so that they can move up that on it's just the fact. It has nothing to do with race. It just hit blacks hardest because we were the first ones in. This is it. And I'm glad we're transitioning now. In fact, my life's work is to help us transition now. You think I might be stuck in this stuff? But we're stuck because we were the first in. And it hit us hard. And we need to get ourselves out of it. But you can't get out of it if you don't admit it even happened. Can't get out of it. 
And we need to get out of it, because it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. But you're right, there's some glimmers of hope. And we're and frankly, on some of the glimmers of hope, we have a case to get ready to go back to the court on these blame amendments. And you start getting where money follows children to the schools the parents want, all of a sudden people get the quality education they need so that they can excel and get to that next level. These opportunity zones are incredible new law for us to fix these blighted communities and get some business interest into these good codes. This is correct, and it's law. And now the governors have 10 days to get the zip codes up there. And if I were you, I would call the governor's office or call your local city council person and say, make sure my zip code's on that list or whatever zip code you, you care about. That's just it. So we'll move to the next one, because that's just it. They're just facts with facts. I'm sorry. They're just the facts. You try to be commercial, but it's not. Thank you. Yeah, and there are some zip codes that really hurt. And I'm telling everybody. And, I, and it doesn't matter what color the people are. You know, people want to complain about what happened up in Koreatown. You know what happened in Koreatown? They took their zip codes and they went to the city council and they said, we want public-private partnerships. They did exactly what we just put into law. And the whole community changed. Celebrating its 200th year in, uh, in recognition. It's a Jesuit high school. 
and it's one of the best schools in St. Louis. And my point is the fact that my education did not keep me from being racially profiled by police officers. You're from Los Angeles. Uh, as you know, I'm from St. Louis. My family's been in St. Louis since 1932. My great grandfather was forced here in Mississippi when the KKK tried to mention for this and mention. So my family has roots in St. Louis. My parents went to school in St. Louis. My parents went to high school in St. Louis. My brother graduated from the same high school as me. I have been called a leader by police officers, excuse my language, but my, I, I don't know where my education was in that. I don't know where my education was when I was falling around the, the mall because I was black. I don't know where my education was when that police officer ran my plates for my car and didn't find anything and still pulled me over. Still we know that this happened. Okay, so. Still pulled me on the curb. But the, 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 the question there is about his education. Okay. I
But on the question of police brutality, I think where some focus should go is on unionized police officers. Because where we don't see unionized police officers, we don't see this type of aggression from the cops in poor communities. The nature of unions is the nature of unions, whether they're police, teachers, stewardesses, pilots, unions are based on seniority. So the finer get the finest, and the poor get the rookies and the rebels. So if you really want to solve the question of police brutality, then I would demand of the city council to have a vote to de-unionize these police officers. There was a discussion about unionizing civil service in this country for a hundred years. And people said, don't do it. Because once you unionize a civil servant, you can't fire the rebel. And this is what's happening in poor communities. What's happening now is it's saying, that's why the schools don't work in these communities, because they're unionized. So the teacher, who's rebelling against the other communities, can't be fired, so they're sent to the poor community. That's what begins to happen in these poor communities. Uh, regarding St. Louis, I don't say it was very well. I think he's doing St. Louis, so let's not go personal on this, okay? Let's do this. But and I'm not going to get the microphone again because you've got a long line and you've made your presentation, and I've answered both your questions. On education, what we do know is that when a person gets a quality education, they at least have a, a shot at life. And he didn't get that. That was my point with Michael Brown. But on the question of, 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 of um, police brutality, notice we never get to the question of why is it the only place that we see them out of control in today's society is where they're unionized, where they're protected by the union. So that's, that's my answer to that question.